0: Good evening, I'm Pastor Brooks to be bringing you the word this evening as we close out our series on the kingdom parables. The the last verse there, verse 13 that Dan read, Jesus utters these words. He says, watch, therefore, for you do not know neither the day nor the hour, nor the hour. Um, We're finishing up. Our series in the Kingdom Parables. Welcome back for those of you who are students, and this is your first time back in a while. How many of you are, you're just rolling in town? You're just getting your feet settled. Okay, all three of you. Well, welcome, welcome. I know there's more. I can just sense it. I feel a presence in the forest. No, I'm just totally kidding. I totally. I, you're here. It's great. But. You're here on the last message of an entire series. So I hope this doesn't, like, blow you away or just like, oh, I need the context, I need the context. So I'm going to try to give you the context, like, in the next 30 seconds. Here's what we've been doing all summer long. Jesus came and he said, I've come to bring a kingdom. My kingdom is here. I want you to repent. I want you to believe the gospel. And then what we've been doing at is we've been looking at parables all throughout the summer, parables that, 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 that teach the kingdom the nature, the character, the quality, and how to how to be involved in the kingdom god's kingdom purpose for for all of us and and that's where we've been and so we are now going to take a look at the last parable we 're going to check out here is the parable of the ten versions with Dan just read matthew chapter five twenty five rather verses one through thirteen so if you have your Bibles, please open them if you got it on your your phone, open that up if if uh, if you didn't bring one, you can grab uh, you can take a uh, uh, Bible off the the windowsill there by the way. If you don't ever have a Bible, you forget it and you don't have your phone. When you come through the door, just grab one. Grab one. They're always available on the side. So I want you to have the Word of God in your hand. We're going to be in those, uh, those 13 verses today. We're going to take a look at three things. We're going to take a look at the context. In other words, what's the question that this parable is, is answering what is Jesus trying to communicate? Because he doesn't make up these stories out of the blue just for entertainment purposes. There's always a specific context and a specific question that this parable is designed to answer and a truth that he wants to communicate. Second thing is uh, we're going to take a look at the parable itself. What, what does it say? What does he say in this parable? And then thirdly, we're going to take a look at the application. Take a look at the application. So uh, let's do something a little bit different. I've never done this before, but we're going to take a risk. Instead of me praying for me and for you, I'm going to ask you to to pray in groups of two or three. Now, here's the deal. If you're like, "Oh gosh, I came here, this is so risky and now he's asking us to pray in public. I'm never coming back." It's okay you can pray silently. But if you feel comfortable, if you feel comfortable, turn and pray with the person next to you. Pray that the Holy Spirit would intervene. He would speak to us through his word and he would communicate uh, to us and and change hearts. So take about uh, uh, 15 seconds, 30 seconds to pray and then I'll jump in and pray for us. So go ahead. So, Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that inspired Matthew to write these words down, that you spoke uh, to your disciples. And we, Lord, are your disciples. And there are some here who might not be in your kingdom yet, but they're here and they're seeking. And, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would speak to all of us, regardless of where we're at on our spiritual journey, whether we're thinking about joining and following you or whether we've been following you for years or anywhere in between. Spirit, we need you to speak to us speak through your word tonight and may Christ be exalted and glorified in Jesus name we pray amen well if next week there's 3 people here and no one comes back we know that that was an epically failed experiment in group prayer i'm hoping that's not hoping that's not the case not the case let's take a look first of all the question the question what's the context of this parable What's the context of this parable? The context of the parable, you have to actually go back uh, a full chapter to chapter 24. This is called the Olivet Discourse. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Now, here's what's happened. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 24, the disciples, this is the Passion Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life on this earth. And they roll into town, and they are enamored by what they see. Okay, This is the Passover. Jews from every nation are gathered there and it's a big deal. It's a big festival. There's a lot of people there. And they see the grandeur and they see the majesty of the temple and they're like, Lord, check it out. The temple. And Jesus, yeah, it's going to be totally decimated and wiped wiped clean and it's going to be gone within this generation. What? What? That's the context. That's the context. And so they ask this, tell us when are these things going to be? And what will be the sign of the end of the age in your coming? In other words, wh- wh- what's going on? What's going on? That's the question here. Now, con- contextually, Jesus, three years earlier, he showed up on the scene where most of the disciples were from in, in, around the Sea of Galilee, and his first public proclamation, his first public proclamation is from Mark Chapter 1, verse 15. This is the first time anybody has heard Jesus speak publicly. And here's what he said. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So here's what they have, here's what they've been doing. They've been following Jesus for three years. And he's been telling them, he's been telling them about the nature of the kingdom of God. He's been telling them that it's here. It's here now. It's in your midst. It's not a political entity. It's not a power thing with with swords and money or political influence, but it is a real thing and we've been looking at parables which describe the nature of this kingdom. It's here, Jesus said. It's now. It's also not quite yet because every Jew, every Jew that was longing and awaiting for the Messiah to come to deliver them, saw, rightly so, that the Old Testament promises that when, when the Messiah comes, he would abolish injustice. He would abolish oppression. He would, he would abolish suffering. That the lamb and the lion would lie down together and they would eat straw. That the child would play at the den of a cobra's uh, uh, nest. And and would not be harmed. They they understood rightly that that everything was going to be made right. And now here's Jesus saying, "Hey, the kingdom of God is here now. So repent and believe the gospel." And then he says, "And oh, by the way, the temple's going to be destroyed." And the, I'm confused. Is it or isn't it? I don't understand. And and what we see in verses uh, verses four. Through the end of the chapter, what Jesus does is prepare them. Here's what he says. Here's what he says. In a nutshell, he said, before this happens, before I return and the end of the age comes, you're going to hear about wars and rumors of wars. You're going to see and witness political revolutions you're going to see famines. You're going to see earthquakes. But I don't want you to be deceived. People are going to say, oh, he's here, the Messiah. He's out in the desert. You need to follow me to come see him. Or, or you're going to hear, oh, no, no, he's in the inner room. You need to come in here. He's here. The Messiah is here. Don't fall for it. It's not true. Because as lightning strikes in the east, so will my coming be. You will know it when I come. Until then, there's going to be a lot of suffering. Until then, there's going to be a lot of suffering. And then in verse 36 of chapter 24, Jesus says this, you won't know the day or the hour. You won't know. You won't know. Neither will the angels in heaven know. In fact, the Son won't even know. But only the Father in heaven knows. That's the context. That's the context. And then he brings us this parable. So let's take a look at what we're working with here. Jesus is teaching this parable. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The foolish took their lamps, they also they the foolish took their lamps with no oil with them, but the wise they took flasks of oil with them. Okay, so let's stop right there. Context for this parable: what's the setting? The setting is a first century wedding. Here's the difficulty. Here's the difficulty. We don't know what first century Jewish weddings looked like. We have some idea, but there's bits and pieces. It's sketchy at best. Scholars don't really know. We know what we know weddings look like. I've done five weddings this summer. I got one more to do as a pastor next week. So when I read a wedding parable, I'm thinking in terms of the wedding I was just at. That's not exactly the way it works. But we do have a festive occasion. We have a bridegroom the bridegroom, and we have here part of the wedding party. We have 10 uh, young maidens. It's translated virgins or young maidens, and they all have lamps. Five of them have lamps filled with oil, and they also have a spare flask to add to in case their oil goes out. And you have another five who don't have extra oil, and they're referred to as the foolish, the foolish maidens or the foolish virgins. So those are the people here. Now, what, what does each little part stand for? If you look at, at, the, at this parable, we've already seen earlier the parable of the wedding feast. Jesus is the bridegroom. You say, well, how do you know he's the bridegroom? It doesn't say, oh, by the way, by the way, I represent the bridegroom. He doesn't say that. But here's what he does say in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're like, hey, we've noticed John the Baptist, his disciples, they fast on a regular basis like the Pharisees. Your disciples don't. What's up with that? How come they don't fast? Are they against fasting? And Jesus says, how could they possibly fast when the bridegroom is in their presence? It doesn't make any sense. You don't fast at a wedding feast, and neither do they fast when they're in my presence. But I tell you the truth, when the bridegroom is taken from their presence, they will fast on that day. So Jesus has already established that the bridegroom is a metaphor for him. He is the bridegroom. So who are the the, the ten here? Who do they stand for? The ten, the ten represent those who, they're part of the wedding party in a a literal sense. This is a made-up story, hence parable. But they're part of the wedding party. So obviously, they have some affinity for the groom. Make sense? So they are those, they represent those who are longing for, at least with a verbal profession, that for the coming Messiah and the establishment of the kingdom. So if you were to take a a straw pole in Jerusalem at the time that Jesus is doing this parable and this teaching, and you were to ask this question, so, are you excited about the coming of God's kingdom and the establishment of the messianic rule? Everyone would say, yeah, that's great, that's exactly what I want and exactly what I long for. And... We're going to see that five of them, that actually does play out, and the other five, not so much. So, but we're not in first century uh, Jerusalem. We're here in Iowa City in the 21st century, so we can project that into who, who is he talking about in our context? He's talking about those who self-identify, self-identify as Christian. That might be most of the people here. I doubt it's all of the people here. It's very rare that you'll always have 100% of everybody who comes to a church on any given Sunday or any given church event uh, self-identifies as Christians. You're always going to have some people that are like, yeah, I'm checking this out, or I'm here with my girlfriend, or I'm here with my boyfriend, or I'm here, I don't know, because there's a meal and I, there's a free food afterwards. But So I, I'm not... I'm not so naive to presume all of you self-identify, but that's what—that's who these these ten, who these ten people represent. They're people who self-identify. People who self-identify. You have uh, all of them have lamps. Now, what is a lamp literally? What does it produce? Produces light. It produces light, and they don't have LED lights, so it's light and heat. So it's both. It, it's light and heat. Uh, so it, this, is, this is representative of an outward form of, of religion, if you will. You, you can look at it that way. So all 10 of them, when you walk by them, let's say that you're, you're outside the bridegroom's place and you see the 10 and they all ha- they're holding their lamps, you can't tell who has extra oil and who doesn't. You can only tell that they all are there for the wedding party, but you don't know the inward nature of their hearts. You don't know what's on the inside of the lamp. As it is right now, I can't look at you and tell which of you are the real deal and which of you are deluded or self-deceived, or I just can't tell. And and so Jesus is is, is setting this setting this up. So let's that's the setup. Now let's look at uh, let's let's take a look at the rest of the parable. Verse five: As the bridegroom was delayed, was delayed, they all became drowsy and they slept. They all became drowsy, and they slept. This is a little bit, well, no, it's a lot of bit different. How many of you have been to a wedding this summer? Okay, most of you have probably, you're at the age where all of your friends are getting married. Uh, I'm at the age where all of my daughter's friends are getting married. So that's just the way it works. Seasonal life thing. So whether you uh, have just gotten married or you've been to a wedding, we all get the wedding invitation, and it says that the wedding is on this particular Saturday or this day, and it's at this time, and it's at this location. So you know where to be and when to be there. In the first century, you'd get a notice like this. Hey, this couple's getting married sometime next week. We'll let you know when it's ready. That was kind of how it worked back then. And so then when you found out that the wedding was on and everything was ready, well, now you go. So what we have here is the bridegroom is not with them. And he's gone away. He's, presumably he's gone maybe to uh, his future father-in-law's home to maybe negotiate a bride price. We're not sure. It doesn't say. And, and then he's going to make his way back. And they're like, man, I thought he's going to be here at 6. It's like 7 o'clock. I'm starving. Let's go get Casey's pizza. So they go get Casey's pizza. And then they come back, and he's still not there. And the lamp's burning, and it's burning, and it's burning. And they're tired, and they all fall asleep. Now, by the way, he doesn't rebuke them for falling asleep. Who fell asleep in the text here? All of them, all of them, the five wise and the five foolish. Uh, This goes back to what he says in in chapter 24, verse 36. No one knows the day or the hour. The wise don't know the day or the hour. The foolish don't know the day or the hour. The angels don't know the day or the hour. The son doesn't even know the day or the hour, but the father and the father alone. So next scripture here. We have verse 6. Through nine verses six through nine, but at midnight there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom come out to meet him. So there is a cry in first, uh, um, first Thessalonians verses chapter four verse sixteen. The apostle Paul says that Christ will return with the cry of an archangel. There will be a trumpet blast, an announcement, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When he comes, everyone will know. It won't be a, is he here? Is he here? I heard he was here. No, he's here. Everyone will know. There is a cry. And it it says here in verse 9 that the seven, then all those virgins rose and they trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Okay, we'll stop right there for a second. How many of you were raised as a child that it's important to share? Raise your hands. Okay, those of you didn't raise your hand, you have horrible parents. Now, that's not true. I don't know if your parents are horrible. Everybody is taught, it doesn't even matter, Christian, non-Christian, it is a universal virtue that it's important to share. So how many of you, when you read this parable, are somewhat troubled by the reaction of the wise maidens that they are like, no, go buy your own oil. Does that, does that bother anyone? Okay, if it does, that means that you have a conscience. It's okay. It's okay. That's good. You're sensitive to, to right and wrong. But I want, I want to press something home here. What kind of literature are we reading here? It's not your question. What is this called? It's a parable. This is a made-up story that Jesus is trying to communicate a deeper truth. The point here is not to analyze the ethical or unethical conduct of the ten who had more oil. That's not the point. And besides, what, we're not talking about lamps and oil. It stands for something. If the lamp stands for the outward form of religion, and the oil stands for the inward substance that gives it power, faith, faith, the possession of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this in a literal context. On the last day, Jesus returns, and your friend says to you, hey, could you give me some of your Holy Spirit or some of your faith? Does that make any sense at all? No, that's nonsense. You can't give someone what you possess. You cannot give your faith to someone else. That's absurd. Those of you who have friends that don't know Christ, you can't grant them your faith. Those of you who might be dating someone who doesn't know Jesus, you can't impart to them some of your Holy Spirit. It doesn't work that way. Here's what you can do. You can tell them where to go so that they might come to know Christ. You can share with them how to receive the Holy Spirit. You can share with them the gospel. You can send them to the dealers who sell the oil, but you you can't give them some of your faith. Does that make sense? So understand what this represents. If you understand what it represents, it kind of takes the edge off. Oh, okay, that's right, it's a parable. We're not judging here the wise, the wise ones who didn't share because we've all been taught to share. So that's what's happening here. Now let's take a look at what happens next. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, truly, I say to you, I don't know you. Again, this too is awkward. I mean, imagine you go to a wedding, you forget the RSVP. Nobody ever is told to bring their RSVP. And so you bring this RSVP, you don't bring it, and and the groom meets you at the door. And he says, can I see your RSVP? And you're like, oh, I forgot to bring it. I don't even know you. I mean, who does that? does that? So understand that this is a parable. If they were invited to the wedding, you'd think probably the groom actually was acquainted with them, right? Again, this is a parable. It's meant to communicate something outside of what we're reading here. He doesn't know them and they don't know him. They presume to know him, but it turns out they don't know him. They don't, and so he shuts the door. They are excluded, excluded from the wedding feast. Now let's take a look here at the final lesson here. What's the point? This is, we've left the parable now, now Jesus is summing it up and saying, so here's the point. The point is, watch. Watch therefore, for you don't know neither the day nor the hour. So I'd like to pose a question. What are we supposed to watch for? That's the point of the parable. Watch and be ready. Watch what? Okay, here's a couple options. Here's a couple options. Here's, here's one thing that we're we're not supposed to watch for. We're not supposed to watch the skies. In Acts chapter one, in Acts chapter one, Jesus, after the resurrection, after the resurrection, he says to his disciples, he goes, "Go and wait in Jerusalem until you are empowered from on high. Then the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the very ends of the earth." And then he ascends into heaven. And what do the disciples do? It says there in verses 7 through 8 that they stand there and they watch him go. And they're standing there staring into the sky. And then it says an angel comes to them and says, What are you standing here staring into the sky for? Jesus will return in the same way you have seen him go. Now, therefore, go to Jerusalem. In other words, stop watching the skies. That's not what we're to watch. They're to go to Jerusalem to be empowered and to get busy doing what they're called to do. So here's another common thing that uh, um, I don't think a lot of people in, in Grace Community Church watch this, but it's common in Christendom. There's a lot of headline watchers watching the headlines to try to figure out who the man of lawlessness is. Oh, I'm just positive positive it's bill clinton well nope he's out of office it must be george bush nope nope he's out of office it's it's obama nope it's definitely trump nope it's putin stop already stop with the whole trying to figure out who the antichrist is well there's an earthquake and russia's the bear we know that and it's going to work this way and there's going to be an unholy alliance and then there's the european union and blah, blah, blah. just quit it quit it that's not what jesus is saying we're to watch we're not to watch. Paul gives us some explicit instructions on what it is we are to watch. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Keep a close watch on what? Yourself and the teaching. Watch yourself and keep your eyes on the gospel. Just do that. Do that. Um, first of all, your life your life? Is there any fruit? Paul says in in Second Corinthians chapter 13 verse 5, he says examine yourself. Take an assessment. Examine yourself to see if you're actually in the faith. Now to do that, you've got to analyze two things. Number one, do I believe the teaching? The right teaching. We'll get to that in a second. And is there any fruit? Because a person can assent to the truth of the gospel and have nothing to show for it. That's these five ladies. They have the outward form of religion. They don't look different than their peers. However, there's no heat and there's no light coming out of that lamp. The vessel is empty. They do not possess the Holy Spirit. It's, it, they're, they're just all show. They're just all show. So there there is fruit. I want you to look ahead. Look ahead here to... to uh, Matthew 25, verse 31. Now, this is not a parable. This is not a parable. Jesus uses a metaphor here, but that's different than a parable. He's not crafting a story. He says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne, and before Him He will gather all of the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but on the goats He will place on the left... And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we do these things? And he says in verse 39, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these of my brothers... You did it also to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you didn't give me any food. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't welcome me. I was naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you didn't visit me. Then also I will answer saying, They will say, Lord, when did we we see you hungry? When did we fail to do these things? And, And then in verse 45, he says, Truly I will say to them, as you do not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will all go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal fire. Okay, here, here's what Jesus just said. I'm going to take a look. I'm going I'm I'm to scan the horizon. The angels are going to bring everybody in, and I'm going to judge them according to their works. Now, some of you right now are somewhat troubled and confused by what I just said. I just said that you and I will all be judged by our works. Now, how many of you were paying attention to the Scripture reading earlier when Steve read it and you read it? Or did you just go, blah, 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 blah. I have no idea what I'm blah about. What, what was the verse? Anybody know? Ephesians 2, verses 7 through 10. Now, what does Paul teach there? That you and I have been saved by grace through what? Faith. This is not by works so that no one can boast. But then it says in verse 10 that we were created for good works, which God appointed beforehand that we should do. So let me be very, very clear. You and I, all of us are saved exclusively by grace through faith. That is a free, unconditional gift that you simply receive by, 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 by faith. It is all of Christ. It is the work of Christ. So you and I are saved by our faith, but we are judged according to works. That is the evidence of faith. That's why James says in James chapter 2 that faith without works is what? It's dead. It's worthless. It's of no value. It's like a lamp with nothing in it. It's ornamental. How many of you have parents or grandparents that have ornamental lamps that are worthless just sitting on a shelf somewhere you probably do And you you ever seen those so when the power goes out does grandma get her walker and get over to the uh the the shelf to get down the worthless lamp with no oil to light it no grandma or grandpa they open up the drawer and they get the flashlight out because it actually produces light it's not worthless it's not simply ornamental that's, that's what's being communicated here. We're not saved according to works, but we, our works are going to be judged. They will bear evidence. They will scream loudly whether or not we are the real deal. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, I, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many on the day, they'll say, well, Lord, I preached preached in your name. I I, I cast out demons. I I did many miracles. I, I I was used to heal people. And I'll tell them plainly, I don't know who you are. That's not a parable. That's a statement of what will happen. So don't presume that because you might have the outward form of religion and you have a doctrinal creed and, and you, you, you think that's the right thing, that's not necessarily an indicator that there's any oil in the lamp. So how do you get oil in the lamp? <laughs> the gospel. You don't, oh, I'm lacking evidence. I've am lacking evidence. got to try harder to be a better person. No, that's not the way it works. That's convoluted. Fruit is produced because you have good roots and the roots draw deep into the gospel which is the work of Jesus Christ and what he has done. And what he has done to take our sin. To take our sin. To to bear that sin. We're saved by grace and faith alone but we're judged by works. You say, I don't know, Brooks, I'm not convinced. Romans is the greatest treatise ever written in the history of the world of what the freeness of the grace of God is. Yes? And yet in Romans chapter 2 verses 6 through 11, Paul says very clearly, you will be judged by your works. Those that lack fruit, lack works will be judged unto eternal death, and those who produce works of righteousness will be judged and receive eternal life that 's not the basis of your salvation it 's the evidence of okay i don 't want to I was going to say i don 't want to overemphasize that point I want to overemphasize that point. I am intentionally beating that horse until it 's dead without works as an evidence that faith is genuine there 's a good chance you don 't have any oil in the lamp, and that 's not sufficient so don 't presume. Don't presume that because you have the outward form of religion that everything is good. There's three types of people in this room. There's three types of people in the world. Sticking to the metaphor here in the parable, first type of person here is, I don't have a lamp. I don't have a lamb. This would be the person that's visiting tonight with a friend, or you're checking things out. You're interested. You're, you're seeking Christ. You're, but you're not sure about who he is. You haven't fully bought in yet. You haven't crossed the line. You haven't entered into a relationship with Christ. Some of you might be hostile to the gospel. He's ah, like, I'm just here because of the food. Or I'm just here because well, my girlfriend dragged me and I'm trying to win her over. And so if she thinks I'm spiritual, maybe, maybe, there's a, maybe there's a future for this relationship. Either way, either way, you don't, you're, you're not professing to something that, that you don't have. And we want you to know that this is a very, very safe place for you to struggle with doubt. It's a very safe place for you to struggle with skepticism. It's a safe place to disagree with the people that are here, including myself or any of the pastors. This is a safe place to wrestle with unbelief and to consider belief. So you're in the right place. I want to encourage you to stick around. Stick around this fall because we're going to enter into a series where we're going to dive deep into the story of God so that you have a better comprehensive understanding of who God is and the narrative of, of what he's come to do for mankind through Jesus Christ. And that's going to start this fall. So this is a good place to, to ride out your skepticism. So hang in there. Hang in there. Uh, there's a second group of people, and that's people who have a lamp, but uh, there's no heat or light. These are individuals, you might be a person here who's always self identifies as a Christian. And this is the hard part. You don't even know that you're there. You just presume that you're a follower of Christ because maybe you have a right doctrinal statement. Maybe you grew up, to church, grew up in church your whole life and now, now you're here in college and you're looking, well, it's just the next thing. I was in church growing up and now I gotta find a, now I gotta find a community of faith because that's, that's just the, the group I'm comfortable with. And, and I, I have an affinity for the things of Christ. Having an affinity for the things of Christ is not necessarily the same thing as having a relationship with Christ. Okay, Nicodemus. Nicodemus came to Jesus in John chapter 3. He's a, he's a guy with a lamp with no oil, if you will. He's a teacher of Israel. And it says that he comes to Jesus in the night and he says, teacher, we know that you're from God because nobody could do the things that you do if, if, if God were not with him. And Jesus cuts him off. He doesn't even let him finish. And he says, I tell you the truth. You you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. Nicodemus is like, taken aback by that. He's like, what? How can a, born again, how can a man enter his mother's womb a second time? What is that about? And Jesus doubles down. He doubles down on a very confusing and troubling metaphor. He says, I tell you the truth. Earlier he said, you can't enter the kingdom of God. He doubles down and says, I tell you the truth. You can't see the kingdom of God unless you are born of water in the spirit and Nicodemus is like how can these things be and Jesus says you, you know the spirit is like the wind you can't figure out where the wind is coming from or where it's going but you can see its effect so it is of everyone born in the spirit Nicodemus is totally clueless by this and so Jesus basically gives him something he can grab onto he leaves the realm of the metaphor and he says listen God loved the world so much that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He says, I I didn't come to the world to condemn the world. I didn't come to the world to condemn the world, but I came to the world to save the world. But those who will not believe stand condemned already. Has there been a time in your life where you have repented of your sin and received the grace of God, which is free and available to all? Or are you thinking that your righteousness is enough? Have you repented of sin? Furthermore, have you repented of righteousness? You say, well, how do you, how do you repent of righteousness? Sounds like you're talking about repenting of good stuff. Have you repented of thinking that the good things that you've been doing are the reason that God smiles upon you? Isaiah says that our righteousness is nothing more than filthy rags to God. Nothing more than filthy rites. But Christ desires to clothe you in his righteousness. In his righteousness. At Pentecost, when Peter preaches and 3,000 are saved, right before then, they were cut to the heart and they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus For this promise is for you and for all generations and your children. For all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved and they will be given the Holy Spirit. In other words, your lamp will be filled. Your lamp will be filled. But you have to receive the grace and the mercy of God that comes by faith in Jesus. That's where you get the oil. That's why why Paul says watch yourself and the teaching or doctrine carefully. What is it you're hoping in? The doctrine, the gospel of of the works and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then there's, your lamp could just be a bit brighter. I mean, if you're a follower of Christ and, and there's evidence of faith and there's a longing and a love for Christ, who here couldn't say that their lamp couldn't burn just a tad bit brighter? I'm hoping that most of you can say, yeah, that's me. And the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. But instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. How does one become filled with the Spirit? It's when you are enamored by the love and affection of Christ. The, The ancient divines, 250 years ago, the Puritans had a saying a phrase, and I just love this phrase, they would say things like this, I've been seized by the power of a great affection. So if that's you, your light is a little bit dim and there's some fruit, but you'd like to see more, let your heart be seized by the power of a great affection. Stick around. September, we're gonna be going through 2 Corinthians chapter five. 2 Corinthians chapter five, and one of the things that Paul said, he says, the love of Christ compels me. The love of Christ compels me because I've been convinced of this that the one has died for all and therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died and was raised again therefore I view no one according to the flesh although I once viewed Christ according to the flesh I regard him thus no longer do you hear what Paul's saying my heart was seized by the power Of a great affection. And he was lit ablaze for the gospel. May every single follower of Christ in this room be lit ablaze for the glory of your King. Because there are hundreds and thousands of students on this campus who walk in darkness and they are waiting for an encounter. With someone with oil in their lamp. Will you be that person? Let's pray. Father, you are a good and generous God. You have given us your Son, and you have given us mercy in abundance and you tell us to come and freely drink the water of life. Lord, we pray that you would open up our hearts. Those who do not yet know you, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would draw them to a place where they begin to trust you and surrender to you. Those who do not know or understand that they are just simply walking around with empty lamps, I pray, Father, that you would bring them like Nicodemus to a place of conviction where they recognize that, that their faith is, is dead and that they would repent of their good works and religion and they would receive you as their Savior. And Father, for those who, who believe and they've trusted you and they, they're just struggling to, to live for you, would you fill our hearts to the brim with the Holy Spirit that we might burn brightly for you? not for our own glory, for the glory of Jesus, our Savior. And we pray that the light and the heat which emanates from the body of Christ would be a lamp on a lamppost and it would draw people like a moth to a flame. And Lord, I pray that you would consume those that don't know you with your love, that they might believe and receive the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.